Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories, Episode A, Sam Houston, The Raven. I know what you're thinking. What is Kenny talking about? President Sam Houston? We just left our last episode with President William Henry Harrison dying and Vice President John Tyler becoming president. So who's the Sam Houston guy? Well, it's a bit of a spoiler. But the one thing John Tyler is going to accomplish in his fascinatingly miserable administration is the annexation of Texas. And the annexation of Texas is going to put events in motion that 16 years later will result in the Civil War. That's right. When I look at the first 80 years of American history, I think Everything before this moment, before the annexation of Texas, is just kind of setting up the dominoes to disunion. The Northwest Ordinance, the Louisiana Purchase, the Missouri Compromise, the Nullification Crisis, it all created a nation where, with the right push, everything could come undone. And Texas would be that push. From here to 1861, It will be one thing directly leading to another, starting with Texas and ending at Bull Run. The annexation of Texas will lead to a war with Mexico. War with Mexico will lead to the acquisition of huge tracts of land. The acquisition of huge tracts of land will reopen the slavery question, resulting in a stronger fugitive slave law, the death of the Missouri Compromise, and almost a mini-civil war between slavery advocates and non-slavery advocates in Kansas called Bleeding Kansas. All of that stuff will result in a fusion of abolitionists and Northern Democrats and Whigs into a new political party, the Republican Party. And the emergence of the Republican Party will result in the election of Abraham Lincoln and the immediate cessation of Southern states, who feared Lincoln would abolish slavery, and the onset of civil war in 1816. And way back in the 1830s and 40s, all the party leaders and political elites could see where this was going to go. That's why at the highest level, nobody wanted to touch Texas. Until John Tyler came along and, eager to expand the nation and expand slavery, he threw caution to the wind. But getting into the background of why Texas was so dangerous and why everybody could see that annexation would lead to all these things, that would take a bit too much time away from John Tyler. So I thought I would tell the history of the Lone Star State through the eyes of the man who won its independence, secured its annexation, and who was forced out of office when he refused to lead it into civil war. Sam Houston the first president of the Republic of Texas. Sam Houston was born in Rockbridge County, Virginia, on March 2nd, 1793. And he's basically going to be the most fascinating president this side of Teddy Roosevelt. Seriously, Sam Houston leads an incredible life. He'll be a runaway, a soldier, a drunk, a revolutionary, a statesman, and an Odyssean smartass the whole way through. If Tom Sawyer were a real person who grew up and lived a real life, I think he'd be Sam Houston. Shortly after Houston was born, his father died just as the family was moving from Virginia to Tennessee. So he grew up with two older brothers serving as these towering, puritanical father figures, and he hated it. Seriously, he called them the apostles, and it wasn't a compliment. When they tried to make him clerk the family store, he ran away to live with the Cherokee, because that's right, there were still quite a few Cherokee living in Tennessee at this time, and they were pretty friendly folk. 
So when 16-year-old Sam Houston walked into a village led by a chief that the Americans called John Jolly, Chief John Jolly let him stay. And Houston practically became a member of the tribe. Houston learned the Cherokee language, its culture, he flirted with the young women in the village, he began to dress like them. And this was not a fleeting interest. Uh, When Houston becomes a senator way later in life, he will famously wrap himself in a Cherokee blanket and whittle away the days in the Senate chamber. The tribe even gave him a Cherokee name, the Raven, which was both a creature of good luck and the symbol of a wanderer. It would prove accurate on both counts. But Houston did have to earn his keep, and it appears he might have done this by helping the Cherokee trade with the white settlements around them. By 1811, Houston had moved back into white society and was working at one of these trading posts, but it still wasn't really his thing. So when the army came recruiting in 1813, he signed up to serve in the War of 1812. And do you remember who else was in Tennessee during the War of 1812? That's right, Andrew Jackson. Like a bad penny, he's going to keep turning up. In 1813, Jackson was leading the state militia in the Creek War, which was that struggle between American militia and a sect of Creek Indians called the Red Sticks, who had gone to war with the Americans over American encroachment on native lands. Sam Houston joined Jackson's army just in time for the climactic battle of this war, the Battle at Horseshoe Bend. In this battle, the Red Sticks took up a strong fortified position on a sort of peninsula in a bend in a river. They had built a wooden barricade across the width of the peninsula that any attack would have to charge into, and they kept all their canoes ready on the shore and their rear for a quick escape if they were overrun. Jackson's plan for the battle was to have Native American allies sneak across the river and steal the canoes as he launched a frontal assault on the barricades with overwhelming numbers. It was a strategy that worked. The canoes were stolen, and 800 of the 1,000 Red Stick warriors were killed in the fight when they were unable to get away and overrun. And Houston led the charge and was one of the first Americans over the barricade where he was shot twice in the arm and took an arrow in the groin for his troubles. But he refused to go down. Houston was actually kind of a huge man for his time, six foot six, and he kept fighting until he literally collapsed from his wounds. He had lost so much blood that the field doctors thought he would die for sure and they didn't even bother treating him. But he surprised them by surviving and then beginning a slow recovery. Houston's soldiering was done for now with wounds like that, but Jackson didn't forget his bravery. And that would be helpful when Houston turned to a career in politics a decade later. When the War of 1812 ended, Houston asked to stay on in the army. He was still determined not to leave an ordinary life. But his next assignment proved one of the most conflicting of his life. He was asked to get the Cherokee, his Cherokee, out of Tennessee. So as I mentioned earlier, there were still quite a few Cherokee in Tennessee at this time, and uh, among all of those Cherokee, some small group of them had signed a treaty saying all Cherokee in the state would sell their land and move west, even though this little group did not speak for any of the others. And if this bullcrap sounds familiar, this was a common land-grab tactic that I mentioned in William Henry Harrison's episode. The Americans told the Cherokee in Tennessee that a deal's a deal and they all had to go. And one of those groups that was about to be forced out over a treaty they had nothing to do with? Ole John Jolly and the Cherokee Village that had been Sam Houston's home and family for three years. And now, in 1817, 24-year-old Sam Houston was being ordered to make them leave. And I mean, what would you do? Would you try to pull a MacGyver and train the Cherokee in how to fight and resist? I don't think you would get the Hollywood ending. And Sam Houston didn't think so either. 
Houston went to his tribe and told them, if they fought, they would die. What was happening wasn't fair, but they had no choice but to leave. And if they left peacefully, he might be able to get them more supplies for their journey. With heavy hearts, the Cherokee agreed. They packed their things and began the long walk west toward the Indian Territory of Arkansas. Houston was disgusted by the administration's treatment of the Cherokee and the role he had played in it, and he decided he was done being a man who carried out other people's policies. It was time to start setting his own policies instead. It was time for a life in politics. And Houston was primed for it. He was resourceful, charismatic, a war hero, and not shy about asking for favors. In 1822, 29-year-old Sam Houston won his first congressional seat, running unopposed thanks to Andrew Jackson's firm backing. In 1827, Andrew Jackson asked Houston to run for Tennessee governor, and Houston said yes, although he wasn't entirely comfortable with Jackson's reasons. The sitting Tennessee governor was a Jackson loyalist, but the state constitution allowed no more than two consecutive terms for governor, and this guy's two terms were up. So Jackson wanted to arrange for Houston to take the governor's mansion for a single term and then politely vacate it so the other guy could get it back. Houston said yes to one term, but he didn't say yes to only one term. After a very successful first term as governor, Houston ran for re-election, and Andrew Jackson decided not to get involved. This was kind of Houston's test, a chance to cement himself as Jackson's one and true heir, someone who might leap from Tennessee to the national scene. But then something crazy happened. Houston got his heart broken. And he was so distraught that he disappeared on a three-year bender in the Indian Territory. Yes, that happened. Let me tell you about it. In 1829, 36-year-old Houston married 19-year-old Eliza Allen, a woman practically half his age. And there were immediate problems. Like, big problems. Two days after the wedding... Sam Houston was out snowball fighting with some kids at a friend's house when the friend's wife joked to Eliza, you should go out and help him. And Eliza, stone cold, replied, I wish they would kill him. And then, as if to make sure she was understood, Eliza repeated herself, yes, I wish from the bottom of my heart that they would kill him which is not the best sign of a healthy marriage. Four months later, when Houston was off debating his rival for governor, Eliza fled to her family without even saying a word of goodbye. And when Houston got home to find her missing, I mean, not even country music will capture how distraught he was. He had no idea this was coming, and it broke his heart. Houston dropped out of the governor's race Days later, packed his things and fled west off the map into Indian Territory, where he spent the next three years drowning his sorrows at the bottom of a bottle. And everyone thought Sam Houston was through. And the thing that makes this even crazier is that to this day, nobody knows for certain why Eliza left. At first, neither would say a word of why to anyone. For years, asking Sam Houston about Eliza was the quickest way to earn a stare that could peel paint. And when they did start talking, they gave different reasons at different times. But as best as I can figure, it was probably a combination of two things. First, and this is a biggie, Eliza loved another man. In the 1820s, Young women had to marry whoever their parents told them to marry, and Eliza's parents told her to marry the politically well-connected and up-and-coming governor, Sam Houston, and not her teenage beau. 
which must have been pretty upsetting. But Eliza still might have gone through with it if not for the other thing. Remember when Houston took that arrow in the groin during the Battle of Horseshoe Bend? Well, it never healed right, and blood would ooze from it his entire life, which is a heck of a honeymoon surprise. When Eliza, who was already questioning this marriage, saw the wound, I'm thinking she said, hell to the no, I am out, and fled back to her parents and broke poor Sam Houston's heart. Over the next three years, little snippets and tales of Houston made their way back east. It appears President Jackson may have even had spies keeping an eye on his old protege. But basically, Houston drank and drank and drank. He reunited with John Jolly and his old Cherokee family, who took him back in, but he drank so much they soon changed his name from the Raven to the Big Drunk. But slowly, gradually, he pulled himself back together. The Cherokee knew Houston had connections in D.C., and they frequently sent him as one of their emissaries to the nation's capital. And at some point during these visits, he did get back in touch with President Jackson. He began to sober up, and he began to dream of Texas. Which means it's time to talk about Texas. So we are right around 1833 now. And I'm going to zoom out and step back a bit because there are a few major Texas milestones we need to hit to get you caught up to what's going on and why. So if we back way up to like the 16th century, everything west and south of the Louisiana Territory has been controlled by Spain ever since a conquistador named Cortez overthrew the Aztec Empire in 1521. In the 300 years since then, Spanish power has waxed and waned. In 1810, Mexico began a war for independence, a war it won 11 years later in 1821, establishing Mexico as an independent country. A huge independent country. Mexico City laid claim to all the lands as far south as Panama and everything west of the Louisiana Territory as far north as the Canadian border. This was a country full of mountains and deserts and terrain that made long-distance communication difficult. So it began with a very decentralized constitution. Places like Texas, more than 400 miles from the capital in Mexico City, were allowed to pretty much do their own thing. And they got used to doing their own thing. Especially when they started bringing Americans in. Around the same time Mexico won its independence, an American named Stephen F. Austin was given permission to settle American migrants in the area known as Texas. The government in Mexico City hoped these settlers would spread west and keep the Native American populations in check and develop the land and trade routes, enriching the Mexican state. But the Texians, as they were called, they mostly stuck to eastern Texas, which had a climate that was friendly to slave-based agriculture. Because, oh yeah, they totally brought their slaves. So when Mexico banned slavery less than a decade later in 1829, the Texians were pretty dang upset. I mean, they didn't actually free their slaves. They just called them indentured servants while keeping them trapped in a life of slavery. But they were upset at even having to put up pretenses. And they didn't get any less upset when taxes they had been exempted from came due right around then, because if there's one thing that's always true in Texas, it's that Texans don't like to pay taxes. So, we're getting into the 1830s now, and everyone is pretty upset about these taxes and the abolition of slavery, but at least they've got that fairly autonomous regional government, right? <laughs> about that. 
1833, a Mexican general named Santa Anna overthrew the government and crowned himself dictator. That decentralized constitution? Forget about it. Two years later, in 1835, Santa Anna tore it to shreds and wrote a new one that made it clear he was in charge. And that's about when Mexico's provinces started rebelling. So let's reset the table. It's 1835. Insurrections are breaking out all over Mexico, not just Texas. The Texians, who were mighty pissed about this whole you can't call your slaves slaves and you have to pay your taxes business, they're itching to go into revolt too. And Sam Houston, the war hero and one-time Jackson heir who's finally dried out, is right there in the region thinking it's time to get in the game. Things are about to come to a head. Sam Houston entered Texas in 1833, allegedly on Indian business for the U.S. government, but he quickly set about making political connections across the region. Houston may now have been deemed impolite society in the parlors back east, but the Texians liked the cut of his jib. And when Santa Ana tore up the Constitution in 35, Houston got himself elected to a political convention protesting Santa Ana's tyranny. And then he got himself elected Major General of the Texas Army. The Texians were organizing the fight, and Houston had procured himself a lead role. But the Mexicans were coming. In October, 100 Mexican dragoons showed up in Gonzales in southern Texas to reclaim a little cannon they had there. And 150 Texas volunteers gathered under a white come-and-take-it flag to defend it. Shots were fired, and the War for Texas Independence began. The War for Texas Independence basically has two phases. The first phase was the Texians versus a small regional army led by a regional Mexican general who the Texians could fairly easily push around. The Texians drove the general off, seized San Antonio, and some actually convinced themselves they had won the war. This was easy. Let's go capture Santa Fe and Monterey. But Sam Houston knew better. He did his best to keep the Texians focused on building a strong government and a strong militia because this was not over. Santa Ana was coming, and Santa Ana was pissed. As soon as Santa Ana finished putting down Mexico's other rebellions, he marched on Texas, and he arrived in early 1836 with several armies, each one thousands of men strong. This was the start of the second and decisive phase of the Texas Revolution, the Wrath of Santa Ana. The Texians knew Santa Ana was coming, but they didn't know when or where. On March 2, 1836, just as they were declaring their independence in a small town on the Brazos River, the news they'd been dreading arrived. Santa Ana had entered Texas, marched on San Antonio, and laid siege to the old mission called the Alamo. Roughly 200 Texas volunteers were surrounded by 2,000 Mexican soldiers. Houston was ordered to reinforce the Alamo, but the fight was over before he'd even gathered his men. Santa Ana overran the old mission and ordered all its defenders killed. Only women, children, and a single slave were allowed to flee to carry with them the warning that was Santa Ana, resistance meant death. At this point, General Sam Houston had maybe 400 partially armed and poorly trained militia under his command, compared to maybe 6,000 Mexican soldiers sweeping across the state in multiple armies. So Houston did the only thing he could do. He friggin' ran. In an event known as the Runaway Scrape, Houston's army fled roughly 200 miles, marching toward the Louisiana border picking up recruits and drilling his men as they went. As they fled, the state's government fled too, 
driven by fresh reports of captured rebels being killed to the man by Santa Ana's armies. Now, there are rumors that the reason Houston was fleeing toward Louisiana was that he expected an American army on the border to cross into Texas and help him defeat Santa Ana. But it never came to that, because Santa Ana was getting cocky. Too cocky. Santa Ana decided that if he could capture the fleeing Texas government, he'd win the war. So he raced ahead of his armies with just 300 men in pursuit of the Texas government. But that's not what made the move cocky. What made it cocky was that he wrote Sam Houston a letter telling him exactly what he was doing and saying that after he captured the state government, he'd be coming for Houston next. Houston decided to come for Santa Ana first. Santa Ana had it backwards. Capturing the democratically elected Texas government would never end the war. But capturing the dictator Santa Ana? That sure as heck would. Realizing Santa Ana was as isolated as he was ever going to be, Houston rushed his army, now 700 strong, toward the Mexican dictator. The two armies met at San Jacinto, where they set up camp only 500 yards apart. I mean, and that's, that's really close. That's like five football fields. And a two-day battle took place. On the first day, Houston outnumbered Santa Ana, but only engaged in light skirmishes, not wanting to risk it all quite yet. The following morning, Santa Ana received 500 reinforcements, meaning he now outnumbered Houston. But Santa Ana didn't attack. He probably figured if Houston didn't attack yesterday, when my army was smaller than his, he'll never attack today, when my army's larger than his. Santa Ana also knew that time was on his side. The longer he waited, the larger his army would become. So he took it easy and relaxed. And that was a big mistake. The Texians waited until the afternoon of the second day, when the Mexican army had decided the quiet morning meant it was safe to nap and bathe. And that's when the Texians struck. As much as Sam Houston had tried to drill his men, he still really couldn't do much better than line them up, face them in the right direction, and order them to charge. But at San Jacinto, that one charge was all he needed. The Texians caught the Mexicans napping, literally. Santa Ana might have even had a woman in his tent when the Texians attacked, and they overran the Mexican camp in just 18 minutes. 650 Mexicans were killed, 200 wounded, and 300 captured, including Santa Ana, while the Texans suffered only 11 dead. With their leader captured, the other Mexican armies were forced to retreat. Santa Ana would later be freed in exchange for a promise to pressure Mexico's Congress to recognize Texas independence. But for all intents and purposes, Sam Houston won Texas's independence on April 21st, 1836, on the fields of San Jacinto. Seven months later, Texas held its first presidential election. And though there were three men on the ballot, there was only ever really one contender. Sam Houston ran away with 76% of the vote. And so, on October 22nd, 1836, Sam Houston was inaugurated the first president of the Independent Republic of Texas. The one-time heir of Jackson, who had disappeared into the West on an epic three-year bender to drown his broken heart, had re-emerged the hero of Texas, and now he had but one goal. Get Texas annexed into the United States. Houston wasted no time. He quickly organized a resolution asking the Texans if they favored annexation, which they overwhelmingly did and he sent representatives to D.C., where he was confident President Jackson, his old friend, would welcome the Lone Star State with open arms. And he waited. And waited. And waited. And Andrew Jackson left him hanging. For a couple reasons. 
First, Congress was out of session. But even if it had been in session, there was no guarantee North and South would agree to annex another slave state, which would throw the delicate balance of power in the Senate out the window. Second, remember how Santa Ana had promised to pressure the Mexican Congress to recognize Texas independence if they let him go? Well, he didn't. Mexico still very much claimed that Texas was part of its territory, and if anyone tried to annex the wayward province, it was going to mean war. So, as Andrew Jackson wrapped up what was his final year in the White House, he decided there was no need to rush it on this Texas thing. Everyone was confident Texas would one day join the United States, but the politics of making it happen decreed that it wouldn't happen just yet. Jackson recognized Texas independence on his last day in office, but he didn't push for annexation. And the Texans, well, they were a bit embarrassed. This was the international equivalent of being left waiting at the altar, so they withdrew their petition and realized, holy smokes, we're going to have to do this independence thing for a bit longer than we thought, and it wasn't going to be easy. Houston is going to face three big challenges as president of Texas. Mexico, annexation, and Texans. <laughs> and when I say Texans, I'm being a bit tongue-in-cheek. But seriously, governing is hard. Not everyone in Texas wanted the same things Houston wanted. And the Republic barred presidents from serving consecutive terms. So the next eight years, 1837, to 1845, would see Houston rotate in and out of the presidency several times, with political rivals being president whenever he was out of office. And those rivals would do some pretty crazy things. One launched an invasion of Mexico to try to capture Santa Fe, a disastrous attack that just depleted the treasury and got everyone captured or killed. That same president also passed a law saying all freed African Americans had to leave Texas by a certain date or be re-enslaved, something Houston canceled at the last minute by executive order after he'd won re-election. The president also moved the republic's capital from Houston to Austin, which, well, how do you think Houston liked that? Sam Houston actually tried to move it back out of Austin with the goal of getting it back to Houston twice, only to be stopped by angry Austin mobs both times. And I mean, one time a woman even pointed a cannon at Houston's men, and there's a statue in downtown Austin of this woman with her cannon. And so Austin is where the capital stayed. Basically, whatever Sam Houston wants to do, he's going to have a strong opposition trying to do the opposite and they will pull Texas in that opposite direction whenever they're in power. But what about those other challenges, Mexico and annexation? Remember how Mexico hadn't recognized Texas independence? Well, to make sure the Texans didn't forget it, the Mexicans periodically raided and invaded the Republic, especially after Santa Ana again became dictator in 1839. By the way, Santa Ana is dictator or president of Mexico on 12 separate occasions. It's ridiculous. And twice, his forces occupied San Antonio before withdrawing back to the Rio Grande River. For all intents and purposes, the badlands between the Nueces River and the Rio Grande River were 40 to 100 mile wide no man's land that served as a buffer between the Texans and Santa Ana's army. Houston didn't want another war with Mexico. He knew he had been lucky to win the last one. And he knew the angrier Mexico was, the less likely American annexation was. But avoiding war wasn't easy. Those Mexican raids, they demanded to be answered. And whenever the Texans formed an army and responded, for example, briefly occupying Laredo at one point, the more gung-ho members of the army would splinter off and usually get themselves captured or killed trying to invade deeper into Mexico. At one point, 176 such Texans were captured on an invasion Houston had not authorized, and these 176 guys were forced to draw beans out of an earthen jar. Of the 176 beans in the jar, 17 were black beans. 
and every man who drew a black bean was executed by firing squad in a courtyard. And when stuff like that is going on, Mexicans capturing San Antonio, Texans capturing Laredo, prisoners being executed by bean lottery, it would be really easy for the two sides to slide back into an all-out war. So Houston had to be really crafty in how he handled Mexico, and the strategy he settled on could basically be summed up as the opposite of Teddy Roosevelt's famous axiom. When it came to Mexico, Sam Houston spoke loudly and didn't carry any stick at all. Texas was broke. It had practically no army. There was no stick. So an all-out war wasn't an option. But if Sam Houston didn't put up a strong front, if he let on how weak his position was, the pro-war Texans would toss him out, and the Mexicans would swoop in and invade. So Houston blustered. He bravadoed. He talked a big game. And he also appeased. <laughs> He's kind of pulling in both directions at the same time. It takes a long time for mail to get from Mexico City to Austin. Remember, this is over 400 miles of very hostile terrain. And Houston took advantage of this by engaging in a really slow-moving negotiation for an armistice. These negotiations took forever to conclude, but while they were going on, Mexico was loath to invade. Because Houston's big carrot in this was to refer to Texas as a Department of Mexico in the armistice. In other words, he made it look like Texas might rejoin Mexico. Of course, Sam Houston knew the Texas Senate would never ratify such a deal, so such offers, while insincere, bought peace and time. And time was important, because the last big challenge Sam Houston faced, that original goal of the annexation into the United States, it was taking forever. America's political elite, Martin Van Buren, Henry Clay, and the like, they were unwilling to discuss annexing Texas because annexing Texas would resurface the debate over slavery. And Van Buren and Clay had built national parties by studiously avoiding all discussion of slavery, which was a sectional issue. Basically, if either man picked a side on it, they would alienate half their party and never win a national election. It was a mistake that less crafty politicians will make in the 1850s. So Sam Houston had to make the benefits of annexing Texas and the risks of not annexing it look even greater in the eyes of Americans. And he did this by playing a diplomatic game with the Europeans. Houston began flirting with the British about developing closer political and economic ties, and maybe even turning Texas into a British protectorate, which just imagine if today Texas were part of a global British empire. It's unthinkable, right? But Houston made sure the Americans knew it was a possibility. He might have even planted editorials in Texas newspapers to make it look like everyday Texans were in favor of it. And he did this well enough to convince politicians in both D.C. and London that Texas' entry into the British Empire was a real possibility. But that's not the only plate Houston had in the air. At the same time he was insincerely negotiating an armistice with Mexico and insincerely talking to Britain about becoming a protectorate, he was sincerely participating in secret negotiations with President John Tyler's administration about annexation. But then, just before these secret negotiations could bear fruit, for explosive reasons we'll cover in John Tyler's episode, wink, wink, to everyone knows what I'm talking about, the negotiations were made public, and suddenly all of Houston's cards were revealed on the table. The Mexicans were furious and threatened to invade. The British still thought they could get Texas and convinced Mexico to stand down. And the Americans came closer and closer to pulling the trigger on annexation. And as annexation into the United States came closer to reality, Mexico started to panic. Nobody in Mexico wanted the United States on their border. A future Mexican president would sum the sentiment up by saying, poor Mexico, 
so far from God and so close to the United States. And Santa Ana was willing to do just about anything to make sure Mexico was not so close to the United States. Santa Ana offered to recognize Texas independence in exchange for a pledge that Texas would never join another country. And so, at the very end of Houston's term, a convention was called in 1845 with two options on the table. Independence and peace with Mexico, this was Santa Ana's offer, or annexation into the United States and a likely war with Mexico. The American offer and the Mexican threat were right there. And the Texans, well, do you think it was ever in doubt? They overwhelmingly chose annexation into the United States. Texas was officially annexed into the United States on December 29, 1845. 52-year-old Sam Houston was overwhelmingly elected one of its first two senators, and Texas and the Union found themselves at war with Mexico within a year. But I'll get to that in episode 11 on James K. Polk. At this point, Sam Houston's redemption was complete. The one-time heir of Jackson had come out of nowhere to lead Texas to independence and then annexation. He'd even married a new loving wife in 1840, a woman named Margaret Lee who would be with him until he dies. You could forgive him for settling down to a peaceful retirement. But this is Sam Houston, so heck no, he's not ready to retire. Sam Houston spent the next 15 years, from 1845 to 1860, building his national profile while serving as a senator, a governor, and sometimes just a simple citizen of Texas. He's the only man to have been governor of two states. And he started to get some national buzz for president. Houston was a southerner who put the Union first, which the North appreciated, and he knew the Union was in peril. In 1852, Houston predicted the following, quote, The Free Soil Party, uniting with the abolitionists, will elect the President of the United States. Then will come the toxin of war and the clamor for secession. Each section, in profound blindness, will rush madly to war, each anticipating an easy victory. But what fields of blood, what scenes of horror, what mighty cities in smoke and ruins. It is brother murdering brother. I see my beloved South going down in the unequal contest in a sea of blood and smoking ruin. Houston predicted a military dictatorship would be imposed over the South, which would respond with, quote, the bitter curses of assassinations which is crazy close to what's going to happen. So, in hopes of avoiding this, Houston let himself be put forward as a presidential candidate that he thought the North and South could compromise on. And in 1852 and 1860, he received delegates from various parties favoring his nomination. But he never did get nominated, because in the 1850s, compromise was a four-letter word. The only way to win the Southern votes you needed to reach the White House was to either favor the expansion of slavery or have no stated position on the matter. And Senator Houston had opposed its expansion during his time as a senator. So his candidacy was dead on arrival with the South and would never take off. Defeated, Houston settled for one last hurrah as Texas governor instead, starting a two-year term in December. 1859. And this takes us to the last great principled stand of Sam Houston, the decision over whether to join the Confederacy. A year after Houston was elected governor, Abraham Lincoln was elected president. And when southern states started seceding in the months that followed, most Texans wanted to join them, but not Houston. Houston loved the Union. When he was a young man, he had met the Revolutionary War hero, the Marquis de Lafayette, who had impressed on him the importance of preserving the Union as the most powerful force in the world against tyranny, and Houston sincerely believed that. So when his fellow Texans wanted to destroy that Union, 
Houston did everything he could think of to stall them and their calls for secession. First, the Texas Supreme Court ruled that only the state legislature could secede, and the state's legislature only meets every other year, so Houston tried to buy time by simply refusing to call a special session to Austin. But then Texas secessionists went over his head by organizing a state convention to debate the matter. Seeing he was being outflanked, Houston called Congress so he could personally pitch them on staying, but nobody was buying what he was selling, and they soon decided they were sick of it. On March 15, 1860, the Texas Secessionist Convention swore an oath of loyalty to the Confederacy, and then ordered Governor Houston to do the same or else. They gave him until noon the following day to make up his mind. I can't help but think back to that other great conflict of Houston's life, when he was ordered to make his Cherokee family emigrate to the West. Then it was country versus second family. This time it was support the Union or the state he'd created. It must have been excruciating. Family legend has it that Houston spent the whole night pacing in his home, wrestling with what to do. Stand with Texas or the Union? Which loyalty would he betray? When he emerged in the morning, he said to his wife, Margaret, I will never do it. And he sat in his office whittling, in earshot of the convention, and ignoring them as he heard them call for him to swear loyalty to the Confederacy. When Houston failed to appear, the convention declared his office vacant and appointed a pro-secessionist man to the office instead. When Houston showed up at the governor's office the next day, the secessionist sat in the governor's chair. Aren't you an early riser, Houston said. The early bird gets the worm, the secessionist replied. And that was that for Houston as governor. But it almost wasn't the end for Houston, the fighter. The night before, Houston had written a fiery denunciation of the secessionist convention. Quote, Fellow citizens, in the name of your rights and liberties, which I believe have been trampled upon, I refuse to take this oath. In the name of the nationality of Texas, I refuse to take this oath. In the name of the Constitution of Texas, which has been trampled upon, I refuse to take this oath. In the name of my own conscience and manhood, which this convention would degrade by dragging me before it to pander to the malice of my enemies, I refuse to take this oath. I deny the power of this convention to speak for Texas. I protest in the name of the people of Texas against all the acts and doings of this convention, and I declare them null and void. Houston wrote these comments, but he never did deliver them. But Abraham Lincoln somehow found out about them, and apparently reached out. Two weeks later, after being ousted from the governorship, Houston gathered three of his closest advisors to ask for advice. A Union army was holed up in a Texas port. Lincoln had offered to make Houston a brigadier general in charge of that army and to increase its size to 50,000 soldiers if Houston would keep Texas in the Union. Two of Houston's three friends told him not to take the deal. And I can picture Houston standing there by the fireplace, grimacing. He finally spoke. If I were ten years younger, I'd be ignoring your advice. But Houston wasn't ten years younger. He was sixty-eight years old. His days of fighting, he decided, were over. As Texas slid into the Confederacy, Committees of public safety formed across the state to confiscate the property of anyone insufficiently loyal. Some were executed. The Secessionist Convention issued a declaration of causes to make clear why the state was seceding. Quote, we hold as undeniable truths that the governments of the various states and of the Confederacy itself were established exclusively by the white race for themselves and their posterity that the African race had no agency in their establishment, that they were rightfully held and regarded as an inferior and dependent race, 
and in that condition, only could their existence in this country be rendered beneficial or tolerable. Which, if I may be honest, I feel sick reading that. But I get even sicker when I hear people say the Civil War was not fought by the South to preserve slavery. They wrote it all down. It's right there to read it. As the world went to hell around him, Houston quietly retired to Huntsville, Texas. In America's climactic civil struggle, he would not participate. Two years later, on July 26, 1863, Houston died of severe pneumonia at his home with his family. His last words were, Texas, Texas, and then his wife's name, Margaret. He didn't live long enough to see his prophecy of Southern defeat come true. He was 70 years old. Let's be honest, that was a pretty epic life. The lost boy who ran away from home to live with the Cherokee, served under Jackson in the War of 1812, fled the Tennessee governorship for three years of drunken, self-imposed exile in the Indian Territory after having his heart broken by his first wife, only to pull himself together and win Texas independence, join it to the Union, and oppose its secession. What a life. But what can we learn from this epic odyssey? I'll go with, we all have our demons, our challenges, our weaknesses that we fear will define us. But they don't have to. By some accounts, Houston was an alcoholic from the time he first ran away from home to live with the Cherokee. Sometimes he was a functioning alcoholic, and sometimes he wasn't. But that's not what defines him. He's the man who won Texas independence, the man who brought it into the Union, and the man who tried to keep it there. That's his legacy. His struggles with alcohol are only remarkable in how he didn't allow them to define him. So whatever your weakness, it doesn't have to define you either. One last story. Late in life, after his wife convinced him to be baptized in his 60s, a friend said to Houston, Well, General, I hear your sins were washed away. Houston replied, I hope so. But if they were all washed away, Lord help the fish down below. Thank you for tuning in to Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. You can follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash Abridged Presidential Histories. That helps me buy books and pay to host the show. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps and of the U.S. Coast Guard Band. The primary biography of today's episode was Sam Houston by James L. Haley. In our next episode, we'll resume the main narrative with the president who did annex Texas, John Tyler, the only president who will die a traitor. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.